Hello, I'm Nicole Abadie and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'm delighted to welcome British writer, academic and barrister Professor Philippe Sands to discuss his new book, The Ratline, the true story of a Nazi war criminal responsible for atrocities during the war and his flight from justice after the war. Professor Philippe Sands is Professor of Law at University College London. He's a leading human rights barrister who's appeared before international courts in many of the most important cases of recent years, including, I see, for Australia in ICJ proceedings against Japan. The human rights cases that he's appeared in include those dealing with Iraq, Guantanamo and the Rohingya in Myanmar. He's written a number of academic books on international law, but he's most recently the author of the international bestseller, East West Street, which came out in 2016 and had won a number of literary prizes. His book, The Rat Line, follows a 10-part BBC podcast and radio series, and the book has had amazing reviews, with Stephen Fry describing it as a terrifying and timely portrait of evil in all its complexity, banality, self-justification and madness. Philippe, welcome to Books, Books, Books. It's wonderful to be with you. I wish I was in Australia. I was due to come uh, a couple of weeks ago, but because of current circumstances, that was not possible. But I hope to be there next year. You were to be here for the Sydney Writers' Festival, weren't you? I was coming for the Sydney Writers' Festival. I was going to give a lecture at Adelaide uh, in honour of uh, my dear friend James Crawford, Uh. who's Australia's finest international lawyer, possibly the world's finest international lawyer, and to do events in Melbourne, but uh, and then head off to, actually to New Zealand to the Auckland Writers' Festival. But I'm, um, I'm hoping all that can be put off for next year. All right. Well, I certainly hope that you'll be here next year as well. And I certainly also hope that all those writers' festivals are, are back on foot. Philippe, there's so much to talk about in your book. I would like to focus on four main areas just so that you and our listeners know where I'm going. First of all, I want to talk to you about what Otto did, and I'm going to call him Otto, uh, Otto Wachter, but I'll call him Otto just because it's a little bit easier, what he did during the war. Then I want to talk about his relationship with his wife, Charlotte. I then want to touch briefly on his life after the war from 1945 onwards. And then I want to talk about his son, Horst, who you have got to know pretty well, and his attitude towards the crimes committed by a father who he barely knew. Before I start, I'd like to ask you, why did you decide to write this particular book about this particular Nazi war criminal, Otto Wachter and his wife, Charlotte? What drew you to their story? Just by way of beginning, I'm entirely comfortable with you referring to him as Otto, because part of the reason that I wanted to write this book was to put a human face on individuals who did monstrous things. It's very easy to characterize a person like Otto Wächter as a monster, but I think that would not be right. He is a person who did terrible things, monstrous things, criminal things, but he was also a father and a husband and a lover and a friend and a poet. And a, it's people's complexities are what draws me in, and perhaps that's the answer to your question. In writing East West Street, as many of your listeners who have read the book will know, I was focused on four characters. My grandfather, the two men who invented the concepts of crimes against humanity and genocide, 
and a fourth man, Hans Frank, who had been Hitler's personal lawyer from the late 20s, then in 39 was appointed governor general of Nazi-occupied Poland, and who was really the person who implemented, if you like, the final solution in that territory, and so was responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands, actually millions of people. He's convicted at Nuremberg, and he's hanged for the murder of four million human beings, a million Poles, and three million Jews, amongst them my grandfather's entire family. So Hans Frank is a person of interest. When I do research, I leave no stone unturned. I read everything about the person, and I came across a book by Frank's son, Nicholas, uh, called Deaf Father, the Father, which was a sort of long letter of say hatred, but he really does despise his father. And I tracked him down, met him, uh, came to know each other. We've become friends, actually, which is a curiosity. And one day he said to me, you know, you're interested in this city of Lemberg, Lviv in Ukraine. The governor there was Otto Wechter. Would you like to meet his son? I, I know him well. He is different from me. He looks for the good in his father. But you'll like him. He's a nice man, and he's a decent man. Perhaps we can go and see him together. And we did. And one thing led to another. I wrote a profile of Horst. We made a documentary film together for the BBC, My Nazi Legacy, which is my relationship with Nicholas and Horst. That came out in 2015. And at a particular moment in the making of that film, Nicholas is interviewed and says on camera, I think that Horst could be a new Nazi, that he's an apologist. This mm. is Nicholas's idea. It's not his belief. He says, maybe, maybe that's what he is. In fact, Nicholas has come to the view that that's not who he is. When Horst saw the film, he was very upset. And he said, what do I need to do to prove that I'm not a Nazi? And I thought about it. And one day I said to him, well, you've got all these family archives, letters, diaries, photographs. You say they reveal only the good in your parents. Why don't you make them available to a museum? And then people can read them and look at them and form their own view. He said, terrific idea. The material ended up at the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And at a certain point, Horst said, would you like a copy? And I said, yeah, sure. A USB pops its way through my letterbox. A couple of weeks later, I put it in my computer and it's all in German. It's all in, sort of in handwritten form that is indecipherable. And it sits there and lingers until I have a conversation with a colleague at UCL, a wonderful historian, sadly no longer with us, Lisa Jardine, who had given a lecture at UCL, her inaugural lecture, on the theme she gave it the title, Temptation in the Archives. Mm. And Lisa's work, her life's work, was devoted to the value of personal archival material in a broader historical context. So it's bang on point. Mm. And she catalyzed this project. Let's start then with Otto's career during the war. He's born in 1901 in Austria, and before the war he was a lawyer. From early days, he'd been a supporter of Hitler and of the Nazi party. In March 1938, Germany invades Austria and Otto becomes state secretary. What are some of his first actions in that role? Well, he's got a track record by the time he arrives in, in Vienna in 1938. He's, as you said, he's joined the Nazi party in 1923, so very, very early. He's already by then been locked up for a week for beating up Jews in Vienna and famously, in 1934, he leads a coup attempt, which leads to the death of the Austrian chancellor. So he has to flee Austria, and he makes his way to Berlin, and he ends up by 1937. He's working in the same office as Adolf Eichmann and Himmler and Heydrich. So he's a top-table Nazi. 
the Germans invade Austria, and he comes back on the first couple of days to stand in the famous Heldenplatz balcony overlooking the masses celebrating the arrival of Adolf Hitler in Vienna. And indeed, in the material, remarkably, Charlotte, his wife, records standing within one meter of Adolf Hitler. Which is... She says she says that's the happiest day of her life. She, she lived till her 80s or something, but she describes that occasion as the happiest day of her life. So, so what does he do in this new role as state secretary? Well, uh, what I've wanted to do in writing this book is deal with the realities of decision-making when you're a family guy. He, they are by then married, they've got two kids, and he's got a practical issue. What do I do? After standing with Hitler on the balcony, they walk down the huge and impressive marble staircase inside the Hofburg Palace. And at the bottom, he stops and says to Charlotte, so I've got an option. I can either carry on my legal work and make money as a a lawyer, or I could accept the invitation that has been extended to me and join the government and work for my friend Arthur Seisinkfart, who is the new governor. And Charlotte looks at him and says, take the government job. We don't care about the money. Let's do the right thing. And so the next day he accepts appointment and he becomes a state commissioner responsible for removing Jews and other undesirables from public office. And over the course of the next year, he removes at least 16,000 people. And this is across the spectrum. This is from public prosecutors to postmen and um, people working at the Ministry of Finance. I mean, it's just, it's just anyone who's in a public job will cease to be in that public job if they are Jewish or politically undesirable. And I was horrified to see that that included judges that he removed, and he was a former lawyer. So he, of all people, ought to have understood the concept of the independence well, of the judiciary. Gets, it gets even worse than that. Not only does he remove judges, but it includes the removal from their office of university professors. And he removes two professors from the University of Vienna Law School, where he was a student who were his own teachers. Mm. Indeed, one of them was the dean of his law faculty who Mm. signed his graduation certificate. So he personally removes that man from his office. And within Mm. a year, that man has been decamped to a concentration camp and dies a few months later. So Mm. that gives you pause for thought. What sort of person? I mean, he's not you know, he's at that point, he's 37, 38 years old. He's not an old man, he's a young man. What sort of human being is capable of removing from office the person who taught you in the classroom, your dean at your law school? I mean, that's a very personal question. I teach. That's the kind of person Otto Vechter was, absolutely single-minded in his political objectives. And knowing what the consequences of that removal would be, inevitably, that they, there was every chance and that was what happened, that they wouldn't survive. I think one's got to be very careful in the timetable here. In thirty-eight, I think there were already people being killed, but it was very few in number. I don't think at that point, my interpretation is that there was not a policy of mass murder mm-hmm. at that point. But one of the themes of the book that I've wanted to show is how it happens that once you've crossed a single line, you enter a space in which the crossing of the next line becomes easier and so on and so forth until you reach a point where actually the industrial scale killing of hundreds of thousands or millions of people seems like the logical 
mm. next step. And you can trace Otto Vechter's life as a series of lines crossed. When he's 20 years old, he will beat people up in the street. When he's 23, he'll join the Nazi party. When he's 30, he'll start working as a lawyer. When he's 32 or 33, he will lead a coup attempt in Austria, and so on and so forth. So that what seems extraordinary and abnormal is normalized. That's the story of Otto Wechter's life. So let's take him to the next stage of his war career. In 1939, Germany occupies much of Poland and Otto is made governor of Krakow. He reports to Hans Frank, who you talked about earlier, uh, who was one of the subjects of your earlier book, East West Street. He's by then the governor general of German-occupied Poland and Otto answers to him and to Hitler himself. Could you tell us, Philippe, about what some of his early actions are against the Polish Jews in Krakow? Well, he is personally appointed by Adolf Hitler to be the governor of Krakow. So again, top table, absolutely responsible directly to Hans Frank, but beyond Hans Frank to Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, in Berlin. And he starts straight away. His first action, in fact, doesn't involve Jews. It involves uh, Polish intellectuals. He gathers a group, uh, about over 100 um, leading academics and intellectuals, brings them into the university, and they are all arrested and shipped out to various concentration camps, some of whom do not return. That's uh, already in October 1939, shortly after the, the war has begun. December 1939, he writes home to Charlotte. And this is one of the most interesting things. When you've got access to a family archive, you see the family letters. So he writes one letter home in December 39. My darling, it's all going very well here. The Vienna Philharmonic has been, various political leaders have been, but there's a little bit of local difficulty. There was an attack on the governor general, and tomorrow I have to have 50 poles shot. So interspersed with the sort of family kinds of how the kids mm-hmm. are these sort of one-liners from which mm-hmm. you are able to glean a greater mm-hmm. horror. Mm-hmm. Not long after that, he begins the signing of decrees for the marking and identification of Jews. And that, of course, culminates in his signing the decree that creates the famous mm-hmm. Krakow ghetto. So he is all over these early actions, and it comes back to the point that I made. One thing just seems logical, having crossed one line. Well, obviously, the next thing to do is we've got to do X, Y, and Z. And I've got to say, one of the reasons that I wanted to write this book is that we are, I think, right now in a moment where in some countries, and for some politicians, there is a willingness to cross lines. And I suppose the space that I'm interested in I'm not saying this is a direct comparison between our situation today and the situation in the late 1930s. But what I am interested in is the question of what allows reasonable, intelligent, educated, cultured human beings to cross lines and what lessons are to be learned from the normalization of that process. And that's something that you bring out very clearly in the book you talk about. We'll come to Alcohol is Charlotte in a moment. But when you're talking about Otto and Charlotte, uh, as you say, he's a father. They have a number of children. They lead a refined life of dinner parties and balls and skiing holidays and picnics and hikes. So I think you do that very well. You you make it clear that in all other aspects, they, these appear to be cultured, as you say, cultured, educated people. And the really frightening question is how how 
how are they able to behave in the way that they do? Well, you, you, you get, I mean, you get, you get that even at the most mundane level. So when they arrive in Vienna, they need a, a new home to live. They've mm. been living in Berlin. So what do they do? They get themselves a, an appropriated you know, former Jewish property, the Villa Mendel, uh, which in fact um, has an Australian connection because the daughter of the owner of Villa Mendel, Bettina Mendel, lives today in Brisbane, and uh, her name is Phyllis McDuff, and she is awaiting the return, we'll maybe come on to this later, of a tea set that uh, the son of the Vechter's Horst still has in his possession, in which I'm trying to nudge him to give back to this nice Australian lady not so far from Brisbane. So the consequences of actions taken now more than 80 years ago are very long-lasting. Mm. Let's go now to, I suppose, the critical stage of his war career in terms of your book. In 1942, Otto has made the governor of Galicia, uh, a district of Poland which has a population of about a million, and again, he's personally selected by Hitler for that role. He's based in the capital, which at that time is called Lemberg, and you explain in your book about how that's a, a town that you talk about in East West Street as well that has had a number of names, but in this period, it's called Lemberg, and that's what I'll call it. And he is the governor there from 1942 to 1944 for two and a half years. On the 1st of August 1942, Hans Frank makes a very significant announcement. What is that? He goes to Lemberg. He actually stays with the Wechters in their house. And on the 1st of August 1942, in the University of Lemberg in the main conference hall, the aula of the university, a room that I've given a lecture in, he announces the extermination of the region's entire Jewish population, more than half a million human beings. And that follows on from a conference that has been held a few months earlier in Berlin in a villa on the Wannsee, Lake Wannsee called the Wannsee Conference, which is where the final solution of the extermination of the Jewish population of Europe is decided. The moment of implementation takes place in Lemberg on the 1st of August 1942. And at that point, Otto Wächter is the governor of District Galicia based in Lemberg, and so is charged alongside the SS, of which he is also a member, with the implementation of the final solution in his territory. And that is what happened starting on the 15th of August, 1942. People start getting rounded up, taken out of the ghettos and sent to a nearby extermination camp, which is a gassing center called Belzec. And Wächter is deeply implicated in that. He has a role as the civilian, as the head of the civilian government in rounding people up in identifying people and you know, paperwork is there, the documentation uh, is there. And that's a part of the story where, again, I wanted to personalize what has happened, not so much from my family's own story, but I've met a number of people who were there in Lemberg, Lviv, in August 1942. And there's one person that I've met who's a, an absolutely remarkable man, now in his 90s, um, a, 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 a pediatrician, actually, living in New York, called Michael Katz. Mm. And he's described to me at length what happened in those days. And that brings it very alive and makes it very, very real. Once and, you've heard the authentic voices of people who were there on the receiving end. 
the figures are just astonishing. You refer to the fact at the the later the Nuremberg trials of Hans Frank and others that they revealed that in Otto's first year, more than 130,000 people were killed in the territories that he governed. And then you tell us by 1943, Galizia is, I won't pronounce the German word, but it is free of Jews. There are no Jews left at all. Over 434,000 Jewish people have disappeared and only 3% of the original population of Jews remained. Where had they gone? Had they gone to the camps? They'd been, I mean, there were different types of camps. There were concentration camps, which is where people were held, but not with the purpose of being killed. And then there were extermination camps. And all the main extermination camps were on the territory of the government general, Nazi-occupied Poland. They are known as Treblinka, Majdanek, Sobibor. So the occupied lands of Poland, occupied by the Nazis, became the killing fields, became the place for extermination. And it's plain that everyone knew what was going on. But of course, interestingly, and I looked out for this, with the archives that I referred to earlier, you've got 10,000 pages. What reference is there to any of this in the private correspondence? And of course, the answer is very little. Between Otto and his wife, there's not none. I'll mention a couple of examples, but there's almost nothing. And that raised the question in my mind as to whether the material had been filleted. In other words, had someone Mm. gone through and removed uh, offensive letters and various other things, If they did, they did it incompletely because you find references. So, for example, in August 1942, Otto writes to Charlotte, he's in Krakow, attending a government meeting, and he references the Juden Aktion, the action against the Jews, which is taking place. So it indicates knowledge. And then later that month, he complains uh, about what's going on. He writes home to Charlotte again, saying it's terrible because of all these things going on. I can't get any labor. Uh, I can't I can't get any labor to help me powder the tennis ball. Mm. It's banal and it's just it's distressingly banal because mm. you get a sense of the way in which mass horror has been internalized, regularized, made normal, made a part of day-to-day life, and and it is not worthy of mention beyond that. And that that's I think interesting because it, it sheds light on how regular this became. It just became part of your day job, like any other day job. Oh, yeah, we've got to exterminate all these people, so let's just get on with it. And that's what happened. Another point that you make is after Hans Frank has given that edict, has said that the the final solution is to be um, implemented in Galicia, which meant the entire Jewish population was to be killed. A few days later, you've got a record of Otto sending him a Christmas card saying something to the effect of Merry Christmas and... I'm really looking forward to working with you on this new project. Well, well, the reason, I mean, I've, I've got to frame all of this, and we'll come to it, I think, later in, in, in the order in which you've got things. But, of course, in parallel with my writing of all of this material, I'm engaged in these conversations with their son, Horst, who's telling me what a terrific guy Otto was. And I'm juxtaposing Horst's sort of rose-tinted glasses approach to his dad with the realities of what is going on. And so I am constantly bringing to Horst's attention some of this material to explain that perhaps it wasn't quite as simple. And again, it's the private correspondence that is so telling. So Mm -hmm. whilst 
Horst, uh, whilst Otto is in Krakow, so we go back a little bit in time, he receives a letter from his dad, Major, uh, General Joseph Wächter, who's a significant military figure. He's a former government minister. He writes to his son, my dear Otto, it's very difficult. Uh, I have a dear friend who's married a Jew and they've produced a child. That child lives within your territory and that child has now been uh, subjected to the Jewish race laws. Could you please possibly intervene to do something to look after this child's well-being because it's someone who is the child of a person very dear to me. So you and I can imagine receiving a letter like that. Mm. Well, let me take a look at this. What does Otto do? He investigates. He checks with his uh, you know, civil servants in the department and says, no, no, he writes back, my dear father, no, it's absolutely correct. You're, you're right. We found uh, all the information. She is indeed being treated. But you have to understand these race laws are extraordinarily important because they protect us. They protect all of us. And I can't um, ignore these laws, which have a useful public purpose. And it's just the lot of individuals who are caught up by them to face the consequences. In other words, bugger off, leave me alone. I'm not mm. going to do anything. The law stands. It has to be followed. I'm going to implement it. That is an extraordinarily brutal letter. And in mm. a sense, when you're dealing with these figures, 400,000 people exterminated, the number is so huge that it's almost impossible to get your mind around. It's only when you get a, a single letter like that, dealing mm. with the situation of a little girl who has been caught up in the whole thing, that the thing, the story becomes real. And I've noticed that for a reader, when you've got that point of detail, you can really begin to understand it. And you can also begin to understand the mindset of the administrator, Otto Wächter, who is taking these actions, knowing the consequences at the human level and knowing the consequences for his own father of implementing mm -hmm. race laws that allow people to be treated in this way, leading to their extermination. It's the detail, I think, that is so chilling. Mm, so, and so telling, as you say. July 1944, um, we have Otto leaving Lemberg after the Red Army enters and Himmler transfers him to Italy. I can't resist reading this out for the benefit of our listeners. Uh, Otto sends a letter to Charlotte where he says, we can march into the future with our consciences clear and our heads held high. As you said, it's, it's the little details, isn't it, that are just so significant and so telling. Did he really believe that, do you think, or did he just feel that he had to say it? I think he did believe it because I went through, I've been through with my wonderful research assistants the entire 10,000 pages of you know, mm. materials, there's not a moment in which either Charlotte or Otto express any remorse or regret about anything that has happened. They are both absolute true believers in the Nazi ideology, both of them, until their days they die. And that is, I think, again, chilling and telling and significant. Himmler was, of course, his great mate. Mm. When the Red Army... Um, occupies Lemberg, he flees and makes his way first back to Berlin until he's then posted in Italy, where the you know European battleground has moved to. And I'm conscious, of course, that some of your listeners will have family members who will have fought uh, in Italy in the conflict against Otto Wächter. So this, I know, and I know this from some of the, uh, you know, uh, radio conversations that I've had with people where people have called in and 
referenced their own parents being caught up in the conflicts that I'm now describing uh, in Italy. So it's very real for a lot of people and very real for a lot of people in Australia and, and painful and difficult um, in, in that sense. So the end of the war approaches and um, by May 1945, of course, we've just celebrated the 75th anniversary of VE Day. Charlotta refers to this period as the collapse. Otto's been in Italy sort of running cleanup operations against partisans and implementing economic programs. He finds himself in northern Italy as the war comes to an end, and he decides then, what do I do next? I'd like to talk a little bit about Charlotte. I'll call her Charlotte because my pronunciation won't be as sharp as yours. He meets her in 1929. She's an art student from a wealthy family and they marry in 1932. What are her political sympathies, Philippe, even from that time? I think she wasn't a sort of party political person. So she comes from a very wealthy family. Her father is a steel magnate and industrialist. She's grown up in a very wealthy, very comfortable environment. Um, she's a strong-headed young woman with a very fine artistic eye. She's, I think, not an intellectual, but she gets sent off uh, to London or to Britain in, in 1925 because she's become uncontrollable and they decide the only way to control their darling Charlotte, aged 18, is to put her into an English boarding school. And she is sent to Eastbourne um, where her headmistress, by unbelievable sort of loveliness, is the sister of Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer, uh, Ida, Mrs. Ida Foley, who becomes a lifelong friend of hers. And she falls in love with Britain. She loves, absolutely loves Britain. She actually writes rather entertainingly and perhaps accurately that Britain is even more nationalistic than Germany. They know all about nationalism in Britain, which, of course, writing that right now in Britain rings particularly true. Uh, she spends a wonderful year uh, in England, and part of that year in London, going to lots of museums, and, uh, enjoying it, and goes back and becomes a student of art. Uh, she studies with some pretty famous people. And then she meets, when she's 21 years old, Otto on a railway carriage. They're heading off separately for a ski weekend. And they meet and she falls in love, and she falls in love instantly. She spends three years dating him. Um, we get that in absolutely graphic detail. You've read the book. Uh, you, you know the points of detail that come up. And then she becomes pregnant. And he initially does not wish to marry her. He, you know, has a lot of girlfriends. And he is, you know, getting out and about in Vienna and other places. And this is a bit of a disaster. And he ends up being persuaded by his friend that he needs to do the right thing. And so they get married. Although that doesn't mean that his affairs come to an end they do not they continue and they persist but she puts up with them and she is his strongest supporter and in relation to your question what were her own sort of personal proclivities politically she's not sort of ideological she's anti-semitic and she supports her husband who's going up and up uh, the nazi party and she becomes an absolute true believer she joins the nazi party and she becomes his greatest supporter and she loves the she loves what comes with the power. She loves the cocktail parties and the film openings and the receptions and seeing Goering and being at the opera with Hitler and all sorts of other things. She absolutely loves it. Before they even marry, she gives him a copy of Mein Kampf, I think, back in 1931, which 
uh, gives an indication of where, where her thinking was going. They end up, Philippe, having six children together. You've mentioned that he, um, he wasn't faithful to her. In fact, there's one detail you include that was pretty amusing, I thought, that she found out that he'd been having an affair with a woman, and again, I won't pronounce this correctly, called Trouter, and she at the time was pregnant, and when her daughter was born, she named her Trouter. I thought that was an indication of someone with quite a wry sense of humour. Yeah, but as you can imagine, you pronounce her name absolutely correctly. Can you imagine what it means for the daughter to be named after one of her father's lovers? And the relationship, I understand, between Charlotte and Trouter was not for the rest of their lives a particularly good uh, relationship. In the letter to Otto, when she basically announces that she's going to uh, call the child Trouter, the line is that that'll teach you something. And one of the things that I think is completely fascinating, and it's one of the reasons that I've particularly enjoyed doing conversations about this book with female sort of interlocutors, is that I think a female reader will read this material perhaps with a different eye than a male reader. And I'm very fascinated by that. That's very important for me. For me, Charlotta, in a sense, is the real beating heart of this story. We know all about most of the top famous Nazis. What we don't know about is their spouses, their partners, their lovers. And what for me perhaps is the most fascinating aspect of this type of research and this, this type of subject that I've had access to the diaries is you get a sense of the supportive partner and how significant and how complicit the supportive partner is in the whole thing. And of course, the nature of their relationship, they're married for 20 years, is that for the first 15 years, really, I think on balance, Otto is pulling the strings. He's deciding where they're going to live. He's deciding the direction of their lives. He's deciding which way to go. She gives up her career. She's a fabric designer, but she gives all of that up. And he really is in control. And then from one day to the next, 8th of May, 1945, when the war comes to an end, the balance of power in the relationship completely changes. She's the one who's in control. And for me, that is absolutely fascinating. Let's go to that date now. So he's left Lemberg. The war is over. He presumably doesn't know this, but as you tell us, in 1946, he's been indicted by the Polish government for mass murder of over 100,000 Polish citizens. And so he's He's clearly a hunted man, and you make the point that he's sought by any number of groups. He's sought by the Americans, the Poles, the Russians, and, of course, the Jews as well. Where does he go after he leaves Lemberg, and does he stay in contact with Charlotte? So he disappears off the face of the earth. From one day to the next, she no longer hears anything from him. He has vanished into thin air, and it is only... I mean, I've known the son Horst for 10 years. And for the first five years of our relationship, our knowing each other, my focus was entirely on what Otto did during the war. It was only when I got access to the archive that I became interested in what happened after the 8th of May, 1945, when he disappears off the face of the earth. Because remarkably, they continued writing to each other and they continued keeping their diaries. And so you are able to reconstruct with absolute precision what happened to Otto Wächter after the 8th of May, 1945. And it is an extraordinary story. And 
Charlotta has an extraordinary role in what happened. He decides to hide. He's going to flee from the Allies, who are all hunting for him. Where does he go? He goes high up in the mountains. He befriends a young SS soldier called Burkhard Hartmann, who is uh, part of a mountain regiment who knows how to survive in high altitude settings above 2,000 meters, so very, very high indeed. And Hartmann takes Otto Wächter to a place where he tells Wächter, Otto, the British and the Americans are just going to be too stupid and too lazy to go up high. And they hide for three and a half years. But remarkably, they are not so far from where Charlotte is living. Mm. And so every two weeks, Charlotte goes and finds them at a pre-agreed rendezvous, different on every occasion. And she brings food and clothing and provisions and newspapers and the sports pages and the reports of what's going on in the Nuremberg trial. And they live in that way. Now, you may ask yourself, how do I know all of this detail? At a certain point, I said to Horst, tell me about Burkhard Hartmann. What was he like? What motivated him? How did he help your father? Why did he do what he did? And Horst looked at me and said, well, you can ask me all these questions, Philippe, or we could telephone Burkhard. So this is 2017. Okay, this is 72 years after the end of the Second World War. And I'm thinking to myself, he's got to be kidding me. Hartmann cannot possibly still be alive and able to talk about these things. But he was. And we went to see him in Germany. And it was remarkable. Philippe, what you find out, and I... I don't want to talk too much about what you discover in relation to what happens to Otto after the war, but basically you find out that he's been, at least from 1945 to 1948, he spends three years in those mountains and Charlotte, his wife, is visiting him almost every two or three weeks. Let's pause there now and then let's go to something which to me is almost the most fascinating part of the book and that is your dealings with Otto's son, Horst Wachter. You meet him through Nicholas Frank. He knows him. Interestingly, I thought both of those, so Nicholas Frank's father, Hans, was the one that Otto's, Otto was in fact uh, reporting to. Both of those men were born in 1939, but they couldn't be more different, and we'll come to that in a moment. When you first met Otto's son, Horst, what was he like and how did he feel? How, what was his attitude towards his father and what his father had done during the war? Horst was delightful. He lives in this vast, dilapidated castle, which he's completely broke. He lives in a couple of rooms in this huge castle. And he was wearing Birkenstocks and a pink T-shirt and a little cap, and he was smiling and warm and generous. He's an absolutely lovely person who I've now understood has been deeply traumatised by the experience of the end of the war and the collapse of the perfect family life that they had. And one of the things that's fascinating for me about Horst is that he told me right at the beginning, I need to find the good in my parents. And that's not a dishonorable thing to do. I mean, you know, we are taught, honor, honor your parents. And he takes that, I think, to a particularly extreme position. But as well as doing that, he's also incredibly generous. His view is, look, I've got nothing to hide. Anything you want to see, I'll show you. Any letters you want to see, just tell me and I'll show you and I'll share and let's talk about it together. And I'll persuade you that my dad, yes, he was involved in 
things that were terrible. Yes, the Nazis perpetrated the final solution. Yes, millions of people were killed. Yes, millions of Jews were killed. But my father was not a criminal. If he was involved in it, he didn't really want to be involved in it. He didn't do it knowingly and with intent to kill. But that's Horst's position. And Philippe, you then have a number of dealings with him, and he maintains that position throughout. You interview him, you do an interview for the Financial Times. In 2014, you arrange a public appearance with him and Nicholas Frank on stage together with you in London. And all the time he maintains this position that his father was innocent of any wrongdoing, that he was a decent man. You then, as you mentioned earlier, get to the stage where you are making a documentary with him and with Nicholas Frank, and it's called A Nazi Legacy, What Our Fathers Did. All the while, Horst is continuing to defend his father to you, and you, you describe it at one stage as a bit, being a bit like a waltz. Um, the double advocacy, I think, is another expression you use, of the two of you going backwards and forward. You're trying to convince him that his father really did know and was involved in what happened, and he's trying to say that he really didn't. I want to take you to a trip that three of you make, Nicholas and Horst and you, to what was Lemberg, what's now called Lviv, which featured very prominently, obviously, in your last book for listeners who've read East West Street. You go there to film part of the documentary and the three of you go to the room where Hans Frank in August 1942 had announced this plan that you've referred to earlier to implement the final solution in Galicia, to kill all of the Jewish people in Galicia. What does Hans Frank's son, Nicholas, do? Well, that was a, a, a moment etched uh, in my very being because what Nicholas had done, unbeknownst to us, the film is directed by my friend, my dear friend from University, David Evans, who's also the director of Downton Abbey, which I know people in Australia are very partial to, as they are in other parts of the world. And Nicholas hadn't told us that he had brought a copy of the speech mm -hmm. that his father had given in that very room. So we're just talking away, and this is being filmed. And all of a sudden, Nicholas whips this piece of paper out of his back pocket, leaps onto the platform from which, you know, speakers would address an audience of several hundred people. The room is pretty much unchanged. And starts reading the text that his father delivered. But specifically, he reads that bit of the text where his father thanks Otto Wächter for the great work that he is doing in Lemberg. And so he echoes his father's words to Otto's son. He echoes his father's words. Horst, as you can imagine, is not thrilled by this moment. Feels what was the effect of those words? It was, a, it was a big thank you, wasn't it, to congratulate him for the wonderful work he'd been doing. What, what Hans Frank says is, so I've arrived yesterday in this city and it's amazing. I, I can't see any Jews. What have you done to them, dear Governor Wächter? Where have they all gone, all these flat-footed primitives? And uh, then the audience erupts into applause. And Horst, by now, is pretty uncomfortable. I've got to say about Horst, one of the things is he's got a pretty good sense of humour. He didn't like the film, uh, for obvious reasons. But he wrote me a wonderful little note in which he said, the title's wrong. It's, it's my father, my Nazi legacy, what our fathers did. The title's wrong. It should be what our fathers did and did not do. And he's 
absolutely persistent. He, I have not budged him one millimeter in his position that his father is essentially a good guy. And I've got the story completely wrong. But those kinds of moments were very revealing. He does not want to hear the other side, and he certainly doesn't want to hear it from, um, from Nicholas Frank. I want to take you to the next moment and the next extraordinary thing that happens in that room. You show Horst a document. What is that and what is his response? Well, Horst has by now spent about four years telling me there are no documents that would indicate his father was involved in any criminal activity. So, of course, I think, well, that may be the case. If that's the case, I've got to live with it. But I'm going to have, I'm going to, I'm going to have a look. I'm going to see what I can find. And with the help of a number of research students, including a wonderful Polish research student, we found in a very obscure archive in Warsaw, the capital of Poland, the document indicting Otto Wächter for mass murder of more than 100,000 Pol- Polish citizens. And this was the moment in the university building when we were in Lviv together in the summer of 2014, where I will show this document to Horst. Actually, I had said to David Evans, the director, should I sh- it, wouldn't it be better to show it to him in advance? Isn't that fairer thing to do and this is the difference between the process and you can't surprise someone with the film director who says no absolutely not the very opposite if you show it to him in advance i'll kill you we need to do it spontaneously and so he had never seen the document before i say to him i've got something i want to show you horst and he says yes of course i'd like to look at it and i give him the piece of paper and he pauses he looks at it and he says yes of course and I say, what do you mean? Yes, of course. He says, he says, well, it's 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 not really a Polish or American document. It's a Soviet document. The Soviets hated my father. The communists hated my father because he was anti-communist. It's a fake document. It's a constructed document. It doesn't indicate that the Americans and the Poles really wanted to uh, indict him. So he's always got a way of getting around the materials. But of course, I don't want to give too much away. I find other material which is even worse. But I want to ask you, how do you respond to him then? Well, this is the the moment of the entire story that I'm probably least happy about. Um, Because as a member of the English Bar and as an academic, we are trained not to get emotional and not to get upset and not to wear our emotions on our shirt sleeves. But of course, we're in Lviv, Lemberg. He is really saying some pretty outrageous things. And I lose my racket. And this is where you've, your grandfather has lost all of his family in consequence of the actions by his father. Yeah, we're standing, I think because it happened in, because we're in Lviv and because it's an emotional place for all three of us, I'm in the place, I'm a mile, I'm less than a mile from where my grandfather was born, I'm less from, than a mile from where his entire family was killed or, or sort of herded up and, and sent away to be killed. And somehow being in that place changed at the situation, and I get really irritated with him, really irritated with him. It's the only time in 10 years that I've got really, really irritated with him. And of course, there's a film camera there, and it's recording what's going on. So my irritation is captured forever. And when David came to cutting the film, and I saw the first cut, I said, oh, I don't really like that bit of the film where I lose my rag because that's not what we're supposed to do. And David said, well, I'll, I'll, of course, do whatever you want to do. And I said, no, it's your film. You've got to decide. That was the deal. You're the film director. It's your decision. So, of course, it stays in. And filmically, David says it's very important. Of course, this is the scene in the film 
what my beloved mother-in-law describes as the elder abuse moment, where young lawyer turns on sweet, gentle old guy. And it could be seen in that way. Indeed, that is sort of what happened. So it's not my proudest moment, but it happened. And no, I, I have to put it to you from the other perspective, as from the reader's perspective, you say that, that of all of your dealings with Horst, that's the, the first and only time that you lost your temper with him. And I just put a big exclamation mark next to that um, piece because I couldn't understand how you hadn't lost your temper with him many times over or lost, lost your patience, lost your temper, lost your equanimity. I thought it was extraordinary that you know, it only happened you've once. Got to remember, you've got to remember that I'm a courtroom lawyer and I get involved in presenting arguments. Sometimes I get involved in examination, cross-examination of witnesses. And the golden rule is never show your feelings. And indeed, that is an experience that Australian barristers and lawyers are very familiar with. You mentioned a case that I had done um, a few years ago. I was very privileged to act for Australia in the case against Japan on whaling. And I was working with the uh, then uh, wonderful Solicitor General, Justin Justin Gleeson. And um, in the International Court of Justice, he uh, he won the case, I have to say, with a 30-minute cross-examination of Japan's Norwegian expert uh, on whether or not Japan was or was not engaged in scientific whaling. And that was a lesson in cross-examination. He's a fantastic advocate and he destroyed the witness, but at no point did he use emotion. At no point did he show what his own beliefs were. At no point did he reveal where he was going. He did it exactly in a textbook way and it was an extraordinary thing to behold. With Horst, that is generally what I've tried to do and for the most part have pulled it off, although people are sort of in a state of consternation that I don't lose my rag with him more often. And at times it has been very, very difficult, I must confess. But you're describing the one moment where I lose my rag and David Evans, filmmaker, is thrilled that I lost my rag. Philippe, I wanted to contrast this um, repeated denial and refusal by Horst to accept the seriousness of what his father's done with the attitude of Nicholas Frank towards his father. You mentioned earlier the fact that he wrote a book about it, but there were some, some other things that I thought were quite extraordinary. Nicholas says at one stage, and I can't remember if this is in East West Street or this is in this book, um, I don't believe in the death penalty other than for my father. And I read also that his father, Hans Frank, of course, was tried and convicted at Nuremberg and was sentenced to death and hung. And I, I read, I think it's in this book of yours, that to this day, Nicholas Frank carries with him in his wallet a photograph of his father after he died. How do you explain the difference in attitude between Nicholas Frank, who was obviously so ashamed and so appalled by what his father had done? How, how does that compare and why do you think was Horst's response so different? Why was he so determined to argue that his father was a good and decent man who really didn't know what was going on? That's a completely fascinating question, and I ask myself that constantly. One of the privileges of having to get come to know Nicholas and Horst is precisely that they have fathers who essentially did the same kind of stuff, horrible stuff, but they take very different approaches to what their fathers did. 
And how do you explain that? Is it the fact that one is German, Nicholas, and the other is Austrian? Does that make a difference? Is it the fact that the relationships between the parents in the case of Charlotte and Otto was essentially a decent relationship and between Brigitte and Hans Frank was not a good relationship? Was it the fact that Hans Frank was, as Nicholas puts it, not a good father, whereas Otto was pretty okay as a father? But Horst didn't know him all that well. He was only six, I think, when the war ended, when his father disappeared. And he he didn't really know him as a father, did he? One thing you talk about is maybe Horst's love for his mother and that being. It's, It's plain that Horst is not motivated in his feelings by any sense of deep love for his father. He is motivated by a sense of deep love for his mother. He was very close to his mother. This comes out in many different ways, including the fact that he split up with his wife, uh, Jacqueline, who was Swedish, uh, because Jacqueline just couldn't stand how close he was to his mother. And after Charlotte died, Jacqueline came back to him and they got remarried. That, I thought, was indicative Mm. of the kind of relationship that they have. But Horst deeply admires his mother. And with some justification, and this, again, is part of the challenge of writing a book like this, I didn't want to portray these human beings who did terrible things and sometimes held terrible views purely as monsters. The fact is, come to the end of the war, Charlotte Wechter finds herself in an incredibly difficult situation. She has gone from being a sort of queen-type figure with her husband, a governor. She's got six kids, under 15. She's got no money, nowhere to live. She's got to sort things out and she devotes herself to her kids and she puts her effort into looking after, nourishing, feeding, educating her kids in unbelievably difficult circumstances where her husband has disappeared off the face of the planet and she's got no money, no assets, no nothing. Everything's been lost. The Americans have taken over. It's a nightmare. The Soviets are about to you know, overrun their territory. And that fact which doesn't in any way excuse her appalling views and her appalling actions in an earlier phase, nevertheless is, I think, what has motivated Horst to have this deep love for his mother and his deep respect for his mother. And I wanted to give the reader a sense of that. I didn't want to impose in the writing of this book my views or make moral judgments on who had done what or what was good and what was bad. I wanted to just lay out the material because one of the things I've really come to understand, particularly in the writing of East-West Street, is that readers are intelligent and readers don't want their emotions and their conclusions and their views to be imposed upon by a writer, in my case at least, who tells them what they should think. And reasonable people read this material and they come to different interpretations as to the decency or not of Charlotte Wechter in that particular period. And that's what I wanted to do. It's, a, it's an element of restraint. It probably comes because that's a courtroom type of style where you want the judge to come to their own conclusions. And it's for each reader to read this material and form their own views. And there is not a monolithic view. It's possible to interpret the material in different ways, not the crimes, but the decent aspects of a mother who looks after her six children in times of tremendous difficulty. That's an honourable thing to have done, and it needs to be said. It doesn't excuse all her dishonourable actions and all her dishonourable thoughts, 
but it needs to be put on the paper. Philippe, thank you so much for talking to me today. There's a whole lot more we could have talked about, but I'm going to leave it to listeners to buy your book and to read it and to discover in the latter part of his life from after the war, what happens with Otto and with Charlotte. Uh, suffice to say that there's enough intrigue to fill a John le Carre novel, and I can't help mentioning that John le Carre does actually make an appearance because he's your neighbour. So there's a lot more to read and enjoy in this book. Congratulations and thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to be in this conversation with you. I really appreciated it. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbody.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abbey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.